Welcome to the 11th episode of Out of Play Area, where we sit down with fellow Full Sail alumni and Hall of Famer Grant Shankweiler, who is living the freelance dream running his company, Shank Ventures, serving as a highly sought-after game development consultant. He's our first guest that has pulled off the hat trick in this industry, starting off as a programmer, then evolving into a game designer, and then finally moving into production at id where he worked on rage and at epic games where he worked on the powerhouse that is fortnite we dive into how he evolved across all of those disciplines the power of radical vulnerability to bring a team together as well as how he dealt with burning out and more currently residing in raleigh north carolina by way of cincinnati ohio please welcome the good homie grant shockweiler Let's start the show. Bienvenido, bienvenue. Welcome to the Out of Play Area podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. You stay humble, and I'm not a naturally humble person. I realized many years ago I have some narcissistic tendencies that I have to fight, but the the humility is something that can drive you when you come in with the beginner's mind as often as possible, right? And I just keep learning. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I was just describing like some of the things I've done in the last five years. She was like, man, you're like a real renaissance man. There's two titles that I've always said I would aspire to be remembered for. And and I'm not talking at 30, 35, 40, 50. I'm talking about when I'm 80 years old, right? I want people to look back and I want them to say he was a polymath. I, I want to be considered someone who was an expert at, at many, many things, not just making games. And I want people to say that I was a curious renaissance man because ultimately when someone says someone's a renaissance man it means that they're just really curious right because if you think about who is the de facto renaissance man da vinci yeah. leonardo da vinci and da vinci was the most curious creature to have ever lived in my opinion i read his biography uh, a couple years ago it's one of the best books i've ever read it's very dense it's hard to get through what's it called it's called da vinci it's written by the same guy who wrote hamilton which was adapted into the musical and the author spent years researching it and he says Da Vinci is one of three things. He was either an alien, an angel, or the most curious creature to have ever lived. There's no other options because he did so much. And he literally has pages of writing about how birds' wings worked. Pages. He would just sit and observe birds for like a day. And I'm like, oh man, he's so curious. I want to be that curious. Da Vinci would be, I think, well, there's two ends of how it could have turned out if he was in today's shoes. I think he has the benefit of not having social media and the constant right. distractions we have. But I think he would have been a fucking fantastic designer. Oh, right? yeah. Like, exactly. Ooh, the yeah. details he covers. And I think it's a shame. The only games I know that refer to him at all are like Assassin's Creed, I believe. And they do it so well, too. Yeah, he's your assassin's cue, right? He's just like, here's your exploding pin, here's your wings, here's your things. And he also had some severe narcissistic tendencies, but it worked for him. (laughs) Being the best person that we can be is about knowing our limitations, know where we can grow, know where we can be better. But for sure, man, knowing yourself and however long that shit takes is about knowing what drives you, knowing what propels you, knowing what inspires you, and knowing how to channel that beast. 
you know, and I, and I think you've done a great job so far, well, man. Thank you. It's funny because for me, it's an easier way to help people. And I think mm -hmm. that's a lot of what you're doing here, right? Like you're creating a database of answers for people. And, you know, that was when I did my podcast, which yeah. I did for, you know, a year and a half. The whole idea was to create an FAQ, right? Because people ask me questions, basic questions all the time. And it's the same ones. They it's the same repeat. ones. And I want to give people personal answers, but I have to get through all of these other things before I can start giving them a personal answer, right? So I can't give you a personal answer how to become a game designer until you understand what a game designer does in all the different ways. I don't know enough about community management, so I needed a place for community management people to get their questions answered of what that role is. And then they can come back to me and ask me specific questions of like, do you know someone at X? How should I get in contact? How should I prepare to interview at this? Those are specific questions versus I got a question the other day that was just like, how do I get funding? And I'm like, I don't know you. I don't know anything about you. That's a huge question, right? I could talk to you for five hours about how to get funding, but if I don't know your circumstances, I can't help you. And it turns out that when I asked one pointed question, the person's in India and that changes everything I could everything. have ever said. Everything I could have said before that point would have been useless because they're in India. So that was why I created that. So that's my whole creation of things is just to make my life easier. <laughs> It took me a while and it definitely was the pandemic that forced mm -hmm. my hand, right? I've been talking yep. about this for like, I don't know, since 2014, since I left Rockstar. Wow. And it wasn't until now where it was like, hey, everybody's comfortable and familiar with webcams and Zoom yep. calls and they have a decent mic. That makes a big difference. And that's exactly what I'm doing, it, bro. It's like I've hit my mission of like, hey, I want to help more games get out into the wild by all different types of people to yep. help bring all the ideas out there that for some reason or the other are not out there already, right? It's surprising however young this industry is that there's still so many untold stories, right? Yep. So many different protagonists that we can tap into, right? Like Da Vinci or some alternate dimension version of Da Vinci would be fucking badass. To that, my friend, I want to toast. What are you drinking today? <laughs> oh, I'm drinking some uh, solid North Carolina H2O, some water. <laughs> I'm an exciting guy. <laughs> Just water? Just water, man. You know, the irony is uh, I run the Game Dev Drink Up and I, ca I can't drink alcohol. <laughs> I traveled to Africa in late 2008, early 2009, and I was there for a little while, and I got like some stomach parasites, yeah. and they destroyed a bunch of the enzymes in my body, and one of them that never replenished is the ability to process alcohol. So I, my doctors basically say that I would just start having seizures if I got to the point where I would be tipsy. So I have not tested that theory hey, <laughs> since <good man>. 2009. <laughs> the last time I consumed alcohol, I was incredibly, incredibly sick. And I've been, I've, I've been sober for a long time. But, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I often talk about failures or things that you look back on your life and are really hard. And that was a hard time. They thought I was dying and they thought I had colon cancer at, at 21 years old. I thought, I thought it was over. And I looked around, I looked at my life and I realized I was really happy with what I had already accomplished. And it became a very freeing thing when they came back and said, hey, look, all the tests are negative. You're going to be fine. There are just certain things that you can't do for the rest of your life, certain foods you can't eat, certain things like that. And having that weakness has allowed me to build other strengths it can be a challenge. You know, our industry likes to drink and I like to travel and that's how you meet people. They're always going to offer you drinks. Always going to look at you <laughs> yeah, in a right. certain way when you turn it down. 
Right. And I also played rugby for a long time. And that's a big part of the community and rugby is drinking. But it opened up different conversations to people. And, and I got to have really good relationships and conversations with people because I had to be really vulnerable, right? Like instantly, when you tell somebody you can't drink, their brain goes two ways, right? Either you're a recovering alcoholic or there's something wrong with you, right? So you have to be able to, to kind of explain because, I mean, the, there's nothing wrong with being a recovering alcoholic. Not at all, man. People in my family have struggled for years. And it's one of those things where I immediately have to be vulnerable to those people. And vulnerability from one side always brings vulnerability on the other side. And so I've had this opportunity to just have super deep conversations with people that I've met for like an hour of my life, right? And one of the things I said pretty early on was I never want to meet somebody and not leave an impact on them. I want to leave people better than, than I found them just by telling them they have a nice smile <laughs> or whatever it is. That's what's important, you know, so. That's crazy. Until you said it at this moment, I've never realized that, that like vulnerability immediately reciprocates vulnerability from the other side. I'm like, is that true? I thought about it. And it's like, yeah, when I put myself in the shoes of like someone really telling me a really personal thing, it definitely does at least invite me to get on the same level, right? To be like, hey, I've been there or yo, for sure, that that's harder than I thought, whatever. Or to kind of check out, right? Be like, yo, I'm not ready to get on that level with you, right? Which is fine, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. that, that's so true. That's crazy. Yeah. There's a psychologist and writer named Brene Brown and she has mm. a series of books and yes. her whole thing is about radical vulnerability and so this is something i talk a lot to my clients about right like every studio that i work with my goal with them even if they say this isn't our goal my goal with them is to create an environment of radical vulnerability and radical candor because i've experienced in my career in in corporate games that there can be too much holding back criticism and i know that you know this that the best thing to make great games is constant iterative feedback and conversations within a team. Amen. So, you know, if you and I are working together and you do something and I don't feel comfortable telling you that that's bad, yeah, then it's going to make the game worse overall. So what I often tell people is our goal is to get to 365 feedback, which is constant feedback. You do something wrong, you know, right away, you know how to fix it, you know how to be better and also vulnerability. And so we talked a little bit about the Pecha Kucha stuff, but that's part of the point of the Pecha Kucha introductions. Which for people that are not familiar with it, in a, in a quick breakdown, what is a Pecha Kucha? Yeah, so Pecha Kucha, I won't go into the whole background of, of, of a Pecha Kucha presentation. It's Japanese, blah, blah, blah. But the way that I do it, I got it from a guy named Scott Crabtree, who's an amazing consultant around happiness at work. And the way it works is you have a set amount of slides and a set amount of time, and the slides automatically advance. And the way that I normally do it is 15 seconds per slide and then like three minutes overall. And you're doing a presentation on yourself, and it's not about your work. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes when you work at a game studio, all you ever know is what the person worked on before, right? Yeah. So a presentation like mine would be talking about, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. I grew up a Reds fan, which means I'm often saddened by my baseball season. And, and then I talk about, you know, you're allowed to talk about where you went to your university and why you got into your experience or into your career. And then you just talk about different things, right? And you'll find that people automatically start connecting in different ways. I ran this once with a team that was really struggling and they just were constantly fighting. There, there was infighting happening. And specifically, there were two people in the team that were fighting each other all the time. Were they across different departments by chance? So it was a UI team 
and one one was a programmer and one was an artist and so they Classic. were they were arguing a lot and some of that argument was healthy but some of it wasn't and so they did the Pecha Kucha presentation and they realized they had all these things in common and they like <laughs> they like started like hanging out outside of work and like became like <laughs> best buds. And I'm like, what? And that was like <laughs> beyond what I expected to happen. I just did it because I wanted to get to know people on my team a little bit better, but then, and they were radically honest. I mean, like one guy talked about being on the autistic spectrum, right? Everybody on the team didn't know that one guy talked about losing his dad early. And so people were like way more honest than I expected. And I realized that my so i did my presentation first to give them an example and my presentation talked about my illness that i had as 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 a 21 year old and so they're like oh we're supposed to be vulnerable (laughs) and so people were were vulnerable and so yeah I've, i've got to run those dozens of times and every time the team gets much closer but yeah if anybody wants to learn more about it they can look up one of the gdc talks i did i think it was 2017 so if you just search for my name in gdc it'll pop up I saw one today. It was like GDC 2016, and it was kind of a production panel. Yeah, that was it. It's funny the way the universe works. I should have definitely have seen that talk a long time ago, but I came into Petrucuchas from my skip level manager last year. Right, wow. he kind of threw it out there when we were all working from home and kind of feeling that low team morale, detachment, people feeling alone and isolated, and things like that. He kind of threw this out there. He's like, "Hey guys, this is what I want to propose. What do you guys think?" And I went into that sucker like full steam ahead. I was so happy to <laughs> I've never done this before. That's a huge challenge, right? Like, yeah. And it forces you to identify yourself through pictures only and in a finite amount of time, right? Like three minutes. I, I think at that point it was like seven minutes or some something like that, right? But either yeah. the challenge is still hard. No matter how much yeah. time you have, it's still awesome to have to scope not a game, but your life. <laughs> and, the, and the things that really interest you and the, and the things that you are willing to put out there for your team. Yeah. But you've seen nothing but good things as a result. And I feel the same way in the, the few teams that I've been able to do it. The good thing is I can kind of reuse it once I build, build it yeah. once. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You might change it. You know, minor mm-hmm. things might happen. You might move or get married or something like that. But other than that, yeah, your, chi- <laughs> your childhood doesn't change, right? Like mm-hmm. your reasons cool. for wanting to make games might change but the reason you got into games doesn't ever change right we all got in for one specific reason and you know one thing i've loved about my career is that each game or each thing i'm doing in my career has a different reason than it did Mm -hmm. than that initial reason you know so i think that's fun i definitely want to go back on being brave and acknowledging that yo you know we can still make key connections and relationships and build camaraderie without having to feel pressure to mm. drink, you yeah. know, saying. And in fact, when you're not drinking and you're outside of work, that's a breeding ground for a lot of creative, deep, meaningful discussions, right? Like yeah. about whatever. So props to you for putting that out there. You've had the great opportunity to work with so many different teams because you live the dream job of being a game dev consultant. You do a lot of different things for any given team, not just design or not just production work. Correct. Yeah. It's discipline agnostic. I do a lot of very different things. (laughs) That's awesome. And, And so... I guess I definitely want to work to how the heck you get there, right? Because at, at its core, I just imagine you're just tired of listening to other people, having other people tell you what to do, right? You just kind of <laughs> want to 
go out there on yourself, right? A touch to that narcissism, right? Who better than yourself to tell <laughs> yeah. you what to do, you know? Yeah. But who would I? Yeah. you've gone through an awesome ride ever since graduating out of Full Sail from casual games to the AAAist of AAAist game companies <laughs> that there are. I'd love for you to just share how you navigated through those, right? Yeah. Something that we've talked about is relationships. And, you know, it doesn't take long from speaking with you, even if people don't know who you are, right? To be like, oh, shit, this guy yeah. is somebody that is approachable and easy to connect with for the most part, right? Like, I'm sure people have come up to you out of left field with random ass questions like, how do I get funding? Yeah. Yeah. It happens. It happens a lot. I think one thing that's also interesting is when people start to think they know you, right? I've done a lot of GDC talks. I've done a lot of stuff for Full Sail. And so people think they know me when they don't. And they'll just come up and ask me like a very hyper specific question, forgetting to do the preamble of I'm so and so. (laughs) And it is it is so weird. But I always stop. I say, wait, who are you? (laughs) I don't I don't know who you are. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about your story, right? Okay, so I started making games when I was 12 years old. I played Pokemon Red, and my buddy and I at the time, we used to swap cartridges back and forth, right? So he'd like play Red, I'd play Yellow. Yellow and Red, yeah, we'd swap them back and forth. And I taught Pikachu Cut, and he got super mad. We literally, we got in a fight. We were like punching each other. If you did it on Red, where he wasn't your main dude, it would have been okay. But you did it on Yellow, and this is your main heavy hitter Our main guy. Yeah. Oh. So my buddy is mad. I give him his, the cartridge back and he's mad. We literally started fighting. Word on the internet is you guys got to fists. Full on fists in it. Yeah. Damn. And we, so we're like basically laying on the ground. I haven't fought. And we looked at each other and we said, well, we've been friends for a long time. Why are we letting this game tear us apart? Why are we letting Pokemon tear us apart? We can make a better Pokemon. And so we, <laughs> so we decided to make our first game, which was purely in the design doc phase. And uh, we wrote it all down longhand. And it was an arcade shooter. And mm. you went around, you killed Pokemon, and then you captured them. And there was like this whole invasions thing that happened. It was, it was pretty intricate. And we decided that Sony would obviously want this game because... Obviously. They were violent. It's violent, but also like they didn't have Pokemon. Pokemon was on Nintendo, right? So I found like an address online and I sent them the document. And we actually got a letter back that said, thanks, we don't want to be sued. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, do you still have that letter? No, no, I don't. Which makes me very sad. So that happened. And my buddy and I just decided we were going to start learning how to make games. So we started modding things like Tribes 2. Mm -hmm. And then I started doing Warcraft 2. And so I did tons of modding there. And then I played, you know, a lot of Morrowind and other games. But then I played Deus Ex. And Deus Ex was the first game where I was like, I think I want to do this. I think I want to make games. Because of that systemic aspect, right? I'm sure. Where you could be like, oh, I can do things that the game didn't think I would do, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was just, uh, you got to be so creative, right? And so so at the time, I, I thought I wanted to be an economist. I don't know why a 16 year old thought he should be an economist, but I've been making games all along. And at the same time, I was very involved in the music scene in and around Cincinnati. I roadied for shows. I did uh, show production and audio and all this stuff. And I went on some small tours and things like that. And I heard a full sale basically through a girl that I was friends with. Her dad owned a large show production company. And he said, you know, you should go to full sale to learn show production. And so I went online and I got one of the like mailers sent to my house and I was looking through it 
And I don't remember who it was. I know David Farmer was in there for audio and he had worked on Lord of the Rings. And I was like, holy crap, somebody who worked on Lord of the Rings went went to Full Sail. This is a legit school. And then there was, uh, I can't remember his name, but he had like a, a bio piece on working on Asheron's call. And he was like the game dev featured guy. And I was like, wait, you can go to college to make games? <laughs> yeah. And so my buddy so... and I who fought over Pokemon, we decided to go down and tour the school. So we went down and, and toured the school and it was like, I don't know, I felt like, you know, that scene in Harry Potter when he gets his wand for the first time and it like lights up. Yeah. I, I remember like walking on campus and it was just like, these people are my people. <laughs> this is I where found I found home. <laughs> yeah, I found home. Yo, shout out to having that being at the right place, right time, right connection. That's like, hey, you should look into a full sale. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it was, that was huge. Changed my life. And so I went to school. And I uh, got my game design and development degree. And I think I was, I don't know, I want to say four months. I had just started Final Project. So four or five months from graduating. Mm-hmm. And you and a group of graduates came to campus for uh, Blacksite and did a panel. I was like, what, 2008? Yeah, beginning of 2008, right? Because yep. I graduated in June. so That's when we right met. Of, yeah. Yeah. And so I hounded that panel. I went to every, like you guys did different events. You walked around and you talked. I just like followed people around and I met Rusty and Carrie and I think Harvey was there as well. Yep. And so I talked to that group of people and then convinced Rob Coble to give my resume to people and get me an interview, even though I was like five months away from graduating. And so yeah. I interviewed with I know Rusty was in my interview. I don't remember who else was in there. And then I interviewed with, I talked with Carrie uh, Barcroft. I think yep. her last name is Gellin now. And so this is important. This is some foreshadowing. So I talked to Carrie and had this like kind of really nice uh, conversation with her. And then I went back to school. And a few days later, I get an email saying, hey, you know, the guys really liked you. We want you to do uh, a phone interview just to double check some things. And then we're going to fly you out to Austin. So keep in mind, at the time, I was 19 years old. (laughs) Okay, so nobody knew how old I was. (laughs) And so I'm getting everything situated to fly there. And Carrie's like, yeah, you'll pick up your rental car and you'll do this. And I emailed her and I said, Carrie, I'm too young to rent a car. (laughs) in the state of texas and she said okay we'll give you vouchers for the taxi or whatever so i take the taxi and i do the interview it's still to this day the hardest interview i've ever done the midway interview process was super hard the gauntlet man it's like five rounds right with at least two people yeah it was hardcore the whole day it was all day and so i did that and a bunch of people who I met that day gave me feedback on my resume afterwards. Seth Shane, shout out to him. He shout out to Seth Shane. He followed me out of the office building to sit with me and go through my resume, which was amazing. So that interview was great. And then I went back to Full Sail. And if I remember correctly, what happened was they called and they said, we don't think we have a position for you right now, but we want to potentially talk to you more in the future. And I'm like, okay. How does that feel? Out of curiosity, how, how does that land? I think it landed pretty well because I don't know, man, I was like super excited. I mean, it was my first on-site interview, right? It was my first interview and you guys showed me a, a really cool project you were working on that everybody was super jazzed about. And I was super jazzed about it. I had a lot of ideas. I didn't see myself being a designer at that stage. So interviewing for a design position that would potentially be a level design position yeah. was scary for me because it's not something I, I was a programmer. Is that what you saw yourself as? You saw yourself as a programmer? 
interesting questions. So I went to GDC and I made business cards. And on my business card, I put Grant Tronkweiler, designer, producer, programmer. And everyone I handed my business card to said, you have to pick one. (laughs) You have to pick one. Good advice. So this was after Midway and I was kind of like, I guess things aren't going to happen there. So I'm handing out these business cards. People are telling me, you got to pick one, right? And I was like, okay. So I started telling people I was an audio programmer because I had this really extensive audio production background. Leaning into your musical background as well, too. Exactly. So then this company called Mega Touch Games came down and they were interviewing people. And I asked Rob Coble. Once again, shout out to once that guy. Again, <laughs> once again, once again, Rob Coble. <laughs> and I, I asked him to give them my resume and he pulled me aside and he said, look, man, you know, they're just this small casual game company. I really see you doing something much bigger in your career. I was saving your resume to give to bigger companies. And I said, no, man, I, I just want to practice. I just, I want to interview because I think there are some things I did wrong with the Midway interview that I can correct in this interview. So I went and interviewed there <laughs> and they were on, on campus. We had a really great interview. And supposedly they walked out and told Rob they wanted to hire me on the spot, but they needed to do the due diligence of bringing me on. Mm-hmm. So my best nice. friend at the school, Matt Brenner, he also was interviewing there. He was from the Philly area and they were located in Philly. So the two of us went up and interviewed and we both got job offers. And the idea of going into a company that was small and had a lot of room for me to grow and do different things inside of it to go with my best friend and also all of the programmers there game programmers were full sale grads which meant i was going into kind of a safer place right like a place full of people that thought similar to how i did when you say small how big is small the programming team was eight people and then there were three to five artists so the game development team was less than 20 and then there were other people there because we made bar top touchscreen arcade machines. So we had manufacturing and stuff like that. So I got offered a job there and I accepted that job. As a programmer? As a programmer, as an audio programmer specifically. Nice. And that was two months before I graduated. And so my final project happened and I already had a job, right? I did my final project presentation and Midway came to my final project presentation. I didn't know that they had come to like do this presentation, but they also had me and another person in my final project group who they specifically were trying to hire and another guy in my final project class that they were interested in. So there were three of us in total they wanted to talk to. So I did my final project presentation and I just hung out with the Midway team. Cause at this point they all knew me, I knew them. And I hung out with Carrie like the whole time she was in yeah. town awesome. and I did my final project presentation. I remember I like talked to my parents and then they waved me up and I came up and they said, we want to offer you a job. And I said, well, I already took a job. And they're like, well, we can match that. And I'm like, look, you know, I gave my word. I can't go back on this. Thank you for the offer. And I felt really good about that. However, you felt your first time when it's like, hey, we like you, but not we don't have something right now, right? Yeah. That, that's got to be a nice sense of closure to be like, yeah. they, they were serious, right? That it, you perceive that you could have done better, right? It's all about always kind of self-assessing and being like, where could we have done better? But to that kind of defeatist outlook of your own self or your own performance, is like, hey, you actually nailed it. Yeah, I think that one of the things that was really good was I left that interview feeling like I crushed it at Midway. And specifically because people came to me afterwards and told me I did a good job and that they really expected big things of me in my career, right? So even though I didn't get that first offer, I felt like I had succeeded. 
And the other thing that I had succeeded at and has been a mantra for my entire career is an interview is an opportunity to also network and make friends. So everywhere I've interviewed, I interviewed at some other places as well when I was getting ready to graduate and I didn't accept their offers or didn't get an offer. But I still made friends at those places and I still know a lot of those people. Obviously, I know you and a bunch of people that I interviewed with at Midway, you know, and so that was awesome. That's how close we came, man. I was thinking about it today as I was preparing for this. I'm like, why the hell haven't we worked together yet? Man? <laughs> and it was that close, yeah. that close under different circumstances. <laughs> that company, that team was a really special thing at that time, right? That time yeah. and place and projects and scope and things like that. And on Unreal 3 technology, right? So like a little bit more foreshadowing. Yeah. So I went up to Philadelphia to work for Megatouch Games as a programmer. I rewrote their audio engine and then just became like a, a game programmer. And that was a fun place to work because it was all like a bunch of people who had gone to full sale. We were super tight. We would, it was casual games. We were really only working like eight to nine hours a day. And then we would all just go to each other's places and hang out. So it was like being in college, really. Yeah. It was like the college yeah. life you didn't get at full sale. We exactly. had there, right? We just that, hung out and had a great time all the time. So that, that's, that's how it felt in Austin. Austin's a great college town and yeah. it totally felt that way, right? Like we get to do the things that we didn't get to do at full sale because we were always in class, <laughs> yeah. always fucking working. <laughs> Right. Yeah, always, yeah. always. Philly's a great city too, man. It's That's a great, a great town. city. I love it. I love it there. And I started out as a programmer and I quickly realized something. You know, we talked a little bit about vulnerability and failure. And I realized something that I came in with two other programmers from Full Sail and they were going at like this speed, right? They were growing very exponentially at their skill level was going very high. And mine was kind of going much slower than theirs. And so mm. I looked at it and I said, I don't think... I'm supposed to be a programmer. Like I huh. really love programming, but I yeah. just didn't think like it was so obvious that this is all they wanted to do. Eight hours a day is, is type code. And so the way that the games were made there, there was one creative director and he basically did all the game design. And so one day he came over to talk to me about a, a game that I was programming. And these are small games. Keep in mind, the teams are like two to three people because you're building like five minute long casual experiences. He came over to talk to me about something and I pitched the dumbest game ever to him just as a joke. I said, hey, have you ever thought about like, whether we could get a game to make for women. We have a lot of women that play our games called It's Raining Men, where you're trying to build the ultimate male partner. And each woman can kind of pick her own dude that she's building through the game. And like I explained to him the, the gameplay. And he's like, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. But he laughed. He like laughed a whole lot. Like the whole time I was doing the pitch, he was laughing. And he went away. And like a week later, he came by and he said, hey, you know, I'm working on this new game idea. I need some help with some design problems. Can you take 20 minutes and, and help me solve them? So I went and solved these problems with him. And eventually what happened was I moved into this position where I was doing programming and design. And then eventually the team grew a bit and they needed someone to kind of produce and design all the games. And so I became called lead producer i didn't have any or lead designer i didn't have any when i was leading but i was called lead designer because i was the designer producer so i was leading the entire games team of like 20 something people that's crazy sheer just shooting the shit for all intents and purposes yeah. right like hey here's a game design idea of which we get to hear so many yeah so walking many. wherever right like yeah hey, you're a designer i have an idea for a game let me walk you through my vision right 
Yeah. So you basically did that with the creative director of the studio. Yeah. And I guess had a great approach and sense of pitching a game, much like we were trained to do a full sale. Right. Yeah. And since you've been doing it since you were 12 years old. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> So that let him know that you had a good sense for design. Yeah, I understood it. So you became his go-to person to bounce design ideas off of. Yep. Yeah. Wow. And so I was really doing two jobs at one point, but sure. only getting paid for the one job. And so I saw my career going more towards design and management than programming full-time. And so he would come and ask me to do these things. And so I would finish my coding tasks and then I would work on these things. And then he and my boss at the time came to an agreement where I split my time 50-50. And I'll never forget my best friend, Matt Brenner, and I were working on a poker game together. And I was supposed to be coding all the like gameplay and he was coding the AI. Was it all like C++, by the way? Yeah, yeah, all C++. It was actually on Linux when we started. And then at the end, we were using Unity. So then it was C Sharp. But this game was in C++. Yeah, Linux, no integrated development environment. So no IntelliSense, no debugging. You literally just printed stuff out to text and hope you didn't crash the machine. That's hardcore programming. <laughs> Rockstar San Diego scripting was much the same way, man. <laughs> the hardest thing I've still done in my career was debug x86 assembly in oh God. Uh, low level code for that system. That was a nightmare. I literally was dreaming in three letters for like a month because of x86 nightmare. I remember distinctly having to repeat machine architecture for that very reason, oh, right? Man, like such a hard class. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember I was working with him on this poker game and he looked at me at one point and he said, dude, you don't have enough time to code and I'm doing your job. You need to do something about it. And I was like, okay. So I went to the creative director and I said, here's my pitch for what I'm going to be doing. I need to be designing the games with you under your supervision. And I need to be leading the games team from a production standpoint. So there was a lead programmer and myself that would be leading the, the games teams. And then an art director, sorry. So the three of us would basically be leading the games team. And he said, okay, let me think about it. Let me pitch it. And then the lead programmer basically went to his boss and said, Grant can't do his programming tasks. We need to release him to this other team and we need to hire a backfill for him. So they were my champions. It was great. Those two guys went and championed for me and I got this role. I was like 20, 21 years old and I was leading this, you know, to me, big team is like 20 people. Well, sure, man, because you're still, <laughs> you're still guiding all those resources, right? That yeah. you have to unify them to produce a consistent vision that matches kind of creative direction, art direction, and your technical capabilities. Yeah. I want to take a step back and acknowledge how amazing that actually is from the standpoint of having close rapport and good buddies that can tell you straight up, hey, this is not sustainable. Ideally, it would be different, right? And then you taking that, not being offended, acknowledging it, running with that to be like, all right, what's my ideal setup and creating your role and taking it to the creative director and them kind of all giving you the rope that you were fighting for. Yeah. And you kind of earned it, right? You're already doing both jobs, right? you know? Yeah. I think that's rare and I think it's powerful for you advocating for yourself is something that I see come up a lot in conversation with what we talk about here is encouraging people to be like, yo, let people know what you want to do and that you're capable of doing more than you are currently doing. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So I, I was doing that, right? And I made over 50 games there. It was God. wild. I usually had somewhere between 11 games in the full production cycle. So I would have three oh, to four once? games that were in QA. Yeah. And then like 
four or five games in like production and then i would be doing pre-pro with me and the art director and creative director uh, on our own and so i had to review games every day i had this whole daily schedule and i definitely was working a, a little bit harder <laughs> than was necessary that's what the 20s are for bro that's what you could do in your 20s yeah it was great i loved it i loved it but the muscle that you're developing is is a special one right like your critical eye your analytical sense and like managing the workload is definitely building up that production muscle you're doing intense reps at like body weight or heavier and then you're designing all i can say is that's serious power leveling <laughs> yeah, that is that's exactly what it was, right? I was really lucky. I had a great group of guys that I worked with there and they were all like that radical candor thing I was mentioning. Mm. They were that's what they would do. If I was doing something wrong, I made sure everyone was involved in design so they would give feedback and so that's how I was leveling myself up because it was a bunch of game players, right? Like they had ideas and stuff too. So there's a lot of hilarious stories that happened there, but <laughs> Something that comes to mind that I want to just touch on is the fact that we're always surprised, like at the AAA scale, right? Or 100 person plus size teams, when so much innovation and ingenuity can come out of smaller teams. Yeah. And it's for that simple fact, I think, more than anything else, right? Is now I'm going to use your term, right? Radical candor or radical yeah. vulnerability, right? Where yeah. you guys have a great rapport where you guys can dance across the lines of whatever discipline or department and just focus on like the game can be better this way and go, go, go. And that's where really awesome things tend to happen that aren't just recycled ideas kind of thing. Yeah. So this whole thing's going on. And at this point, I've been going to GDC every year. Yeah, you're like IGDA and you're on the GDC advisory at this point? Not not yet, not yet. That's a that's a recent development. So I do the IGDA and then I also was a I, I've been a volunteer at GDC for over a decade. Anytime I went, I would see you there. I always fucking <laughs> see you there. That's the only place I can consistently rely to bump into you there. Yeah. And so I was loving my job. I had no intention of leaving. I was having a great time. But every time I went to GDC, there were certain people I always spent a significant amount of time. You know, GDC, you like say hi, whatever. But I always spent an afternoon, an entire afternoon with Rob Goble. And then I always spent time with Carrie Barcroft. And I don't know, we just were friends, right? We liked, we liked hanging out with each other. And so at this point, Carrie had left Midway. Um, well, Midway had shut down. And she was at id Software. And so we went out just to hang out, like pre-dinner drinks. And I was talking to her and she was like, hey, I really think you should come to id Software. And I was like, what? And she's like, look, there's like three jobs I think you'd be great at. You can skip the phone interviews and stuff. I'll vouch for you. You can come in, do the in-person interview with one or two of these teams. I, th I think you'll be great. And I was like, I, I don't think so. Why? I just was comfortable, man. You know, you're comfortable, right? Okay, I'm, I'm not taking into consideration uprooting from Philadelphia on the nice East Coast to Dallas, Texas. Yeah, yeah, that is a big change. Also, big fish, small pond. Small fish, big pond, right? I was the head of the IGDA in Philadelphia. I was doing newspaper interviews. I was meeting with the mayor's office. I was doing all this stuff to build the industry in Philadelphia. And I was like on the news, you know, I was Damn. a big fish in a small That's pond. Huge. And so now I have to go small fish into Dallas, right? And start over and, you know, go to one of the most storied places in the industry. And so my buddy, Matt Brenner, who I worked with at Megatouch was hanging out with us and we walked out and he said what just happened and i was like 
I think I just got offered a job, but I think I have to interview. And he was like, yeah, what are you thinking? I was like, yeah, I don't think, I don't think so, man. And he punched me in the arm and he goes, if you don't take this job, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> you don't give Matt enough credit, man. This guy's been your guiding light. He, yeah, man. He, he knows. He was at my wedding, man. He's, okay. been, he's been with me for a long time. We lived together and, you know, roommates for, for many years. And so he said, what games did you envision making when you started making games? Was it these small casual games? And I said, nah, man, it was big, big games, you know, like Doom. And he was like, there you go. So that was the GDC that you guys won all the awards right 2011 yeah 2011 so that was the red dead year and so you know we all hung out the night you guys won all the awards and carrie was with us and carrie kept throughout the night she would come over to me and be like you're gonna come interview right and i'm like i don't know (laughs) carrie right i don't know right good at that so I go back to Philly and she emails me and she's like, this is the team. This is what we want to do. Here are the dates we can fly you in. Like she didn't, it wasn't even a question, man. She's like, you're coming to interview. And I was like, all right. <laughs> you can't, can't say no at that point. You've tried to say no. She just was not hearing it. Right. And, and I want to be clear, two jobs I've had in my industry, I've done the interviews solely as favors to someone else. <laughs> Fair. So I did that. this as a favor to my friend, Carrie. Yeah. And I went in. And before I went, I read the Masters of Doom book, about, oh, yeah. which is a great book. I, great I think book. it's super interesting. And so I read this book about the story of id Software. And I was like, yeah, I want to work here. Like this, sound, Done. this, this sounds amazing, right? <laughs> and so I went in and I, I did the interview to be the technical producer, which means code specifically for the Rage and Doom multiplayer teams. So they were pretty small teams. They were, I think we had like five programmers, two designers, and like four artists, right? Mm -hmm. So they they were a small team building the multiplayer. I'm just curious, right? This is just John Game Dev curiosity. They can split it up that way because it's essentially kind of the same game and all the underlying gameplay code under the hood, right? Right. Yeah. So it's just taking a section of the single player, making it multiplayer compatible. Right. And we weren't trying to like compete with Call of Duty. Right. You know, or Halo, I guess, was the big one at the time. Yeah. Caught in Halo. So I I get offered the job and my start date was supposed to be like July or something like that. And I get this call from Carrie and she's like, look, if you could start in two weeks, that would be really good for us. (laughs) What time was that? End of April, beginning of May, basically, is when I would start. So, like, right? moving it up by three months. Yeah, basically, like, two to three months, right? Because I was I was in charge of all this stuff at my company. So, I needed, like, a long time to leave because I needed to hire my replacements, which I needed, like, two people to replace me because I was doing the job of a producer and a designer, and, like, onboard these people. Yeah. Finding people takes, at best, a month and change. And then the grooming process, you know, at least two months. Yeah, yeah. Right. So they worked some things into my offer letter that made the incentive something I couldn't say no to. So I said, yeah, sure, fine. <laughs> I didn't know, though, <laughs> what was actually happening was the Doom multiplayer team that I interviewed for had been now put on Rage multiplayer. And what happened was they had outsourced that. And then it didn't go well. And so they said, hey, we're going to pull this team in and now they're going to build the multiplayer. So I got there and they said, hey, you know, Goldmaster is in October. It's uh, the beginning of June. You guys have to make a whole multiplayer experience. Get the fuck out. <laughs> I think I averaged 90 hours a week for the next like 
five months, four months, whatever it was. And I don't recommend that. It was it was awful. It was a terrible, terrible experience. But I learned so much in that time and i was having a blast in some ways because i was working on this huge triple a game i was like literally looking at code that john carmack was writing every day like i'm like, I'm like oh i found a crash in john carmack's code Ooh. you remind me i don't exploit perforce privileges enough man to like stalk some of my favorite engineers and just look at their code commits yeah. you have something that i definitely have to cite this is one of your many conversations with rob coble where yourself talking about basically no matter where you are in your your career in, in life whatever if you have a john carmack hitting you up or a tim sweeney hitting you up to be like yo we want you to come work for us <laughs> yeah. you find a way to maybe entertain that or make yeah. that happen yeah i sit back and that's that's hella recruiting ability right like whenever i've had a chance to sit down with the studio head that definitely helps tilt the scale to be like oh if i wasn't really sold on working here now i am right that's yeah. powerful stuff yeah so we, we shipped Rage, which was awesome. It was my first big AAA game. It Rats. did pretty well, and but we immediately moved on to Doom. And there's a lot that happened in Doom. And I would just tell people to go watch the Noclip documentary because it was as tumultuous and a, just wild <laughs> as documented. Shout out to Noclip, man. I, I can't give them enough Patreon money for the sweet <laughs> things they do. They're so powerful for, for our industry. And so I was on like basically on the leadership team that was rebooting Doom. I was working on that and I was dating this girl in Austin. And so I started talking with Harvey and Raph at Arcane about transferring to work on Dishonored and went down yeah. and spent a day hanging out with Seth uh, Shane again. <laughs> yeah, the industry, we always, it's all in cycles and loops. <laughs> so I went down and spent some time hanging out with them. And, you know, I really liked it, but I had a couple of my mentors tell me how serious are things with your girlfriend? Because don't make a career move that you think you would regret for any reasons, right? For someone that you're maybe not that serious about. And that was great advice because I broke up with her like three months later. I was in that process of talking with Arcane during that time. And when my relationship fell through, I was like, I'm not really feeling this. But I did get to achieve my dream, which is one of my dreams has been to meet the entire original dev team of Deus Ex. And yes. that was like they, a bunch of them work at Arcane. And so that was like me completing that. I, I was lucky I met Warren Spector many years ago and he mentored me for years. So shout out to Warren. He's OG genius game designer. Yes, he is. There's a tree. <laughs> there's like a godfather lineage tree that can trace up to Warren Spector and the rest of the industry. Yeah, for sure. And so some things happened at it and I all the politics and things that happened were really kind of painful for me. Once the game was kind of on a good path, I was so kind of emotionally drained by what had happened. And so there's this there's this idea in psychology of someone who is a change agent. And once they make a change happen, they lose their sense of worth, basically. And so I helped it change and I helped this game get on the right path to become Doom 2016, which is one of one of my favorite games ever. And I just felt like, okay, I did all this. Now we just have the hard work of making the game, but I'm exhausted. <laughs> and so someone told me to talk to a recruiter friend of theirs and i just basically had a conversation that was therapeutic with this recruiter <laughs> what were you just talking to him about all the things you don't want in your next job yeah exactly i was like saying these are what i don't want these are the issues that i've kind of had here and these are the things i love about this job but really it was me saying like I don't think I, I want to stay at id, but I don't mm -hmm. think emotionally 
I am valuable to them anymore, which was a really hard emotional. Is that yeah. what you said? Yeah, because I had gone through this like whole change of like, you know, we had we had laid off people, we had massive reboots, and I was constantly like telling the team everything would be okay. And so I had emotionally invested 100% of myself into the game and to the company. And when we finally were successful, so to speak, once the game was on track, and the goals were set and the pillars were set, and the team was working together in one vision, I didn't have like the emotional weight left in me to get to the end of shipping it got it you knew what it would take to ship it right you saw that it was going to get there now yeah and you knew that you were not able to bring your 100 percent self to the job to get it out on the shelf right exactly hey shout out to self-awareness man and knowing <laughs> knowing these things yeah and i had i had helped with some other games while it while it i helped on wolfenstein and i helped on doom 3 bfg and some other things as well so it was not like i just shipped rage and then worked on doom and didn't ship anything for years but so i talked to this guy and i was trying to move to seattle at the time i, I was actually trying to go to bungie to work with josh hamrick yeah josh hamrick's gonna fall out of play every <laughs> soon man <laughs> great uh looking forward to that so josh and i were like talking about bungie and some weird things happened there where like the recruiter that I was working with, like, I think she went on maternity leave or something. So I like applied and then like my resume disappeared for three months. Oh no. And so I was talking to this recruiter and he was like, look, man, there's this producer job at Epic games working on the engine. And I really think you would crush it. And I'm like, I don't want to move to North Carolina. I don't really want to work at Epic. I, I liked Gears of War a lot. I was a big fan of Gears of War. I was a huge fan of Unreal Tournament. Huge fan. And I had used UE, you know, I had, I had yeah. built mods and stuff with it. But I just, I don't know. It just didn't seem like, like me. I'd, I'd been to North Carolina a couple of times and I don't know, didn't feel, feel like me. So he said, as a favor, would you go interview? <laughs> <laughs> I see where this is going. Yeah. So I came and did this interview and the interview was supposed to be for the engine team. And so I, in the morning, I was doing these, you know, normal two-person, three-person interviews. And I'm talking about my engineering background. I'm talking about my experience leading engineering teams and stuff. And then I go to lunch. And at lunch, it's the executive producer of Fortnite and the executive producer of Paragon. And they're like talking to me about their games. And Tanya, who was the executive producer of Fortnite said, why didn't you apply for the Fortnite production position? And I was like, well, actually, the recruiter had submitted my resume for both. And I was like, yeah, I submitted my resume for both. And that position I got rejected for. And she was like, huh. And she literally got up and walked out of the lunch. And I looked at like John Wazelchak, the, the producer for Paragon. And I was like, did I offend her? Yeah, to you, that seemed fishy. But from anybody listening to this or looking in, she probably marched off to go resolve somebody's fuck up. Yeah. So we finished lunch and I get back and my recruiter HR person at, at Epic says, hey, so your interview for the rest of the day has been canceled. And I'm like, oh, I messed up. You know, when you end an interview at the end of lunch, it means you're done. Right. She said the engine team loves you, but Fortnite wants you. So you're going to be interviewing with Fortnite people for the rest of the day. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what a ride. She said, can we push your flight back? and have you stay longer and you're going to interview with all the Fortnite people you need to. So normally the interview ended at like two or three or something like that. Yeah. And so I ended up going to like five o'clock. And so I met with all the Fortnite team and they showed me the game and I was smitten. Because it looks pretty. I, I don't know what it was like back then, but it looks pretty. I think the main thing for me was it was really weird. <laughs> 
Yeah. Right? At that time, it was a super weird game. And it's still weird now, but it was weirder back then. <laughs> Help ground me real quick. This was what, 2015? 2014. 2014. Yeah. And what was the vision for the game? Because it surely wasn't like 100-player Battle Royale, no. I'm sure. So originally it started as an Xbox Live Arcade game where you were supposed to go in and just survive for a certain amount of days. And it was like a purely instance. You came in with four players. Like tower defense. Tower defense, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You built your tower and you did it. But by the time I came, it was like this longer tail adventure co-op game where you would go into these instance worlds build a base, defend it, get some things, leave, and like level up that way. All the building components were a key part of that experience. Yeah. So at that point, the visual look was there. All the AI were in. The weirdness of like some of the controls and all the building were in at that point when I joined. Which is the key of what that game still is today. Exactly. Right. It's two different game modes. <laughs> I can't take any credit. Like, like I, I look at that game, it's hard for me to play. But I, I admire my nieces and nephews who were able to pull this <laughs> off on PC, joypad, or touchscreen, right? Like, yeah, how the wild. fuck am I running and gunning and building at the same time, damn it? <laughs> it's I so can't good. do it. It's so good. Yeah, so they showed me the game, and I was like, this is super weird. It's super out there, and it's wild that this is like the Gears of War team building this. Is it? the? Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I basically ended my interview, and they're like, so we need to talk <laughs> because you were interviewing for a different position. So we don't have an offer ready for you for this, but we're going to talk to you like in the next 48 hours or something like that. Right. Fair. You had the job before you even left the soft offer. I like to call it verbally. Right. So I leave and I'm at the airport and they call me and they're like, we're going to send you the paperwork right now. Everybody loves you. We're really terrified that you're like going to, oh, I'm sorry. I left this out. I told them I was interviewing with Gearbox the next day. Which is like down the road from it. Right. Because they had asked me to stay that night. And I was like, I'm, I'm interviewing at Gearbox tomorrow. I can't, I can't miss my flight. So they knew. They were aware, right? Which, by the way, that was a pro move that I learned early on, like to schedule interviews close to each other and tell the other people you're interviewing because they get super competitive. Pro game dev tip right here. Right there. Yeah. So I went and I got offered the job. I didn't accept it though, because I was interviewing at Gearbox. So I said, uh, you know, I'm going to interview at Gearbox tomorrow. So send me your best offer, <laughs> which <laughs> is the like the cockiest thing I've ever said in my life. Right. I said, send me your best offer. Well, I mean, to be fair, right? Like, you know, you've been candid with me, but I think you have a great balance between your self-perception and being a humble, approachable dude. But Thank you. <laughs> when a company lets you know that they want you, the ball is in your court, you have exactly. the leverage, yeah. and you got to capitalize because you will not have a better opportunity to kind of get what you think you're worth than at that point, no matter what you do with the company or however long you stay there. Right. And so this next part is not to toot my horn. This next part is specifically advice for people because I think we are really bad at challenging offers. And Mm -hmm. I know this because I help people all the time with this. So I went and interviewed at Gearbox and it was one of the funnest interviews I've ever had in my life, partially because I knew everyone I interviewed with. You know, I ran the game dev drink up there. We all went to the same bars like three nights a week, right? We all were friends. So I just had this really fun interview. And not to mention like the move would not even be a thing. Yeah, yeah, literally I could see my old office (laughs) from Gearbox, (laughs) right? Like they're right next to each other. So I went home that night and I got the call and they told me what their offer was. They went through my recruiter. Sorry, they didn't call me. They went through my recruiter. My recruiter said, this is the offer. And I said, I I don't think that's their best offer. And he's like, what? And I was like, 
I think they can do better than that. And he's like, that's not how this works. And I was like, because at this point in my brain, I really wanted to work on that game. But also, I really wanted to work at Gearbox. <laughs> so, yeah. so I knew I could play them against each other. And so what I did was I said, well, you know, I'm, I, Gearbox is going to, I know they're going to offer me a job tomorrow. And I think Epic can do better. And they said, oh, you know, I, I don't think they can do better. And I, <laughs> this is kind of embarrassing. I literally pulled up Jerry Maguire on my laptop. And I played "Show Me the Money" <laughs> to the recruiter. Oh damn! <laughs> I was like, Show me the money, Mike. Show me damn. the money. <laughs> He's got to work for you, right? He got to work for the company. He got to work for you. Yeah. Which makes him more money, by the way. If anybody mm-hmm. doesn't know how recruiters work, so he goes back and he tells them, "Grant doesn't think this is enough money. What can you do about it?" And so what they did was they came back with a significant signing bonus which isn't ideal. You obviously want income more than bonuses because they're taxed higher and also it's one time, but it was enough to make me feel like they took me seriously. Yes, and that's that a great they, sign. they really wanted me and I really wanted to be there. So I accepted that offer and I told Gearbox thanks. That was a hard no to say too, because again, it was literally me interviewing with like 20 of my friends. <laughs> so I had to tell them uh, no and started at Epic as a producer on Fortnite. And it was just two of us. Two of us were producing this big game. So we had an EP and then there were my boss who was a lead producer myself, which shout out to both of them, <laughs> to Tanya Watson and Roger Collum, because they were both killing it. Just the two of them running a team of over a hundred people. And I, I don't really know how they were, they were doing that. So I came in and, and it was the best job I had ever had and maybe the best production job I'll ever have inside of a studio because they said, hey, we trust you. That was like one of the first things they told me. We trust you. We don't care what you do day to day. Here are the teams you're responsible for. Here's some of our processes. Look at all of them. Tell us what we're doing wrong and let's start over. And I was like, okay. So I just like interviewed all the team. I spent all this time getting to know everybody. And then immediately, like normally it's like a two to three month ramp up for a producer. Yeah. Within like a month, I was like making like systemic changes for the entire project of how production works because it was collaborative. So the three of us would like sit and be like, oh, here are these things that we're weak on. And so that was great. Like the first six months there was just was just a total blast. And then I'd been at Epic for a year. We'd done the early launch of, of Fortnite at this point. So a year in. Paul Megan, who is the president president of Epic Games at the time came into my office and he just kind of like poked his head in and he was like, hey, uh, so I hear that you worked on mobile games at some point in your career. And I was like, yeah. He goes, well, we have a partnership with Tencent and they want us to explore making a mobile game using UE4 to release in China. Would you be interested in running the team? And I'm like, sure, why not? Thinking it's a small team. I can run both teams at the same time, which is just madness. Um, well, yeah, you're going back to like your roots at Megaton. Yeah, right. And so they basically pulled the creative director on Fortnite and then the lead systems designer and put them in a room for like two days and were like, come up with a game idea. And then I built like a small team with them, like of like five or six guys. And it was the wildest experience because we were basically an indie studio doing this rogue game that nobody knew about inside of Epic Games. <laughs> so imagine like a bunch of dudes who are like friends, just like hanging out in one big room, working on one game nonstop, but fully funded forever. But we had a really tight deadline. And so I was managing that and then two of the Fortnite teams at the same time. And then it kind of got to a point where my boss was really, really interested in the mobile stuff just from a career standpoint. He wanted to go and learn it. Mm-hmm. And so he took over that project and I took over all of his Fortnite teams. So I was 
unofficially the lead producer on the project for a few months. And at that point, we had like 150, 200 people. But I had a couple assistant producers and still had the executive producer. And so that was stressful, but a lot of fun. And then things started to change at Epic corporately. And my job went from like, we trust you, do whatever you want to a little bit more corporate than I was liking. I see that you got the thick skin and the battle scars, right, that you've developed to, to deal with this craziness. I think you got some gems in there that I'd like to ask you about with regards to how do you mitigate or balance the madness or the stress of more than eight hour workday, right, for <laughs> a long time? Anything you want to talk about with regards to that? Because we can all benefit from any insight with that. So I was working a lot. And what I did was I balanced that working with a lot more downtime. So I like made a rule after working on Rage that I wouldn't work on the weekends. So I stopped working weekends. Everywhere I've interviewed, I've told them I don't work on weekends because I have a chronic illness. I I just can't work 90 hour work weeks i can work like 50 maybe 60 but i can't push that hard i need two days to like recover let my body recover and so i was working a lot when i was first at epic and when i was running these two teams and i was starting to sense a level of burnout and so i started making drastic changes to the way i worked and those didn't necessarily mesh well with some of the corporate changes that were happening at epic specifically things like you know, I'm going to try and stick to an eight-hour workday. Mm-hmm. I'm going to not check my email other than twice a day. Things that are just, you know, health things. I want to focus on my team and things like that. And so I was really starting to burn out. And I started to identify that and started to have some serious conversations with people around the studio about my burnout and realized that I just needed to quit. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done because Damn. I absolutely love Fortnite. I loved working at Epic. There were there were corporate changes that I wasn't a huge fan of, but I, I could have existed in that inside that ecosystem in some way and yeah. been successful and still enjoyed myself. But they were like, you know, do you need to take like a month off? And I was like, I don't think so. I think I just need to quit. And so they were they were really gracious about that experience. <laughs> I basically told them I was going to go travel for like six months. Yeah, and they were they were so nice. They they offered to let me stay on like insurance for like six months and use Epic's insurance and stuff. That's really nice. They didn't have to do that. Yeah, they didn't. They treated me really great. And so I went out and I took took the time off and. I traveled all over the South Pacific and did a bunch of like odd jobs all over the US and stuff like, you know, worked on farms, did some minor construction work and stuff like that. And and I wrote a lot. So since I'm all into radical vulnerability, I'll, I'll say this. On top of the burnout, three of my friends committed suicide within six months in 2016. Whoa. And, and one of those people, I showed up at the same time the cops did. That was a that was a really hard experience to found them. to to find them and so you think a lot about that right you start thinking a lot about your life when that happens when when three people that that you love and care about do something like that and so I think my burnout on top of that happening oh man just made me kind of question what I was doing and so I needed six months to just get my head right how old were you at this time. How old am I now? <laughs> so <laughs> like what year? 20, 2016. So at this point, I would have been 28, 29, somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah, dude. It, it would have been like a full decade around there since you had your first touch with mortality, right? It'd be like yeah. the, the stomach illness and, and things like yeah, this, man. Exactly. And, and that shit has a way to help you quick, fast, reframe yeah. what the hell is important. But hey, I don't want to make light of it, man. That, that no. for anybody, one, one is too much. 
let alone three in such a short time frame. Holy yeah, it was cow. it was rough. And and I remember when I decided to quit. I came back into the office the next day, and normally I'm a, like a fairly presentable person when I go into the office. But I went in the next day in like a gym shorts and a and a white tee to like do some paperwork or something. And somebody was like, "You look like a mess," but at the same time, you look like a weight has been lifted off of your chest. And this was the beginning of my recovery, basically. What I said to them was, I realized that this job was too important to me. And all of my self-worth was in working at Epic. And that wasn't good. None of us are supposed to define ourselves solely by what we do for a living. And so I spent the next six months writing through, I wrote like some screenplays that'll never get produced and aren't intended to be but dealing with loss, dealing with suicidal thoughts, dealing with your worth. And I had like a real breakthrough. I was in New Zealand and I went to where they filmed Eros, which is the, the Roharim, beautiful spot in Lord of the Rings, right? So it's this mountain, it's called Mount Sunday. And it's this mountain in a huge valley, like the size of Seattle, right? It's this valley that's the size of a city. And on all four sides are snow-capped, 10,000 plus foot mountains and you sit on this little 3,000 foot mountain and there's nothing and I was on this mountain all by myself there was literally no one in the entire valley there were no cars there were no people it was me in basically the size of a city and I and I guess I'll call it talking to God and I was just like what am I doing what makes me happy why am I in New Zealand (laughs) why am I making games what am I doing and it was my realization that my self-worth and my value doesn't come out of my job it comes out of my relationships it comes out of my life experiences it comes out of my servant attitude and my working for other people's own good and that was the beginning of me trying to figure out what to do next and so then I went to Australia And I lived with my friends in Sydney, and both of them worked remotely, one of them as a consultant, and one of them worked for Unknown Worlds working on Subnautica. And there was this day where I was like, I'm going to go to the beach. And they're like, oh, we'll come to the beach with you. It was like a Tuesday. I'm like, it's Tuesday. You can't like come to the beach on Tuesday. You have to work. And so we went and got on the train, and they were both on their laptops, typey, 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 you know, the whole way. And then we're at the beach for like three or four hours. And then we get on the train and we we go back to their apartment and I like take a shower and I come out and I'm like, Hey, I'm going to go walk around and have dinner. Uh, I know you guys got to work. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, you have to work. And they're like, no, we worked on the train. And I was like, what? That's a thing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we, you know, we work from anywhere. So, you know, we just rechanged our consultancy day and like did this. And I was like, huh? Okay. So now that's in my head. First off, my conversation with a higher being telling me you need to help people. Then this idea of you can work anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, being a consultant is a viable career path. Right. Now I've been basically unemployed for six months and I'm at GDC. And at this point, I was working on my first book. Is that the remote working tools? So that's the latest one. The first one was called Gear Up Advanced Agile Development Practices for Game Development. That was the first book. And... I was at lunch (laughs) at GDC and somebody goes, hey, my team has a problem with a game and can you come to lunch tomorrow at GDC and listen to our problem and give us feedback? And I was like, yeah, of course. And this is like not a small team. It wasn't like EA or anybody, but it was like a a well-established company. So I went to lunch and I sat with them and we had a conversation and I gave them a bunch of feedback. And then the next day I got an email that was like, you got a $50 Amazon gift card 
and they were like, hey, thanks for the 45-minute chat. And I was like, did I just get paid to consult? <laughs> and so they called me like a week after GDC, and they said, hey, we were wondering if we could like continue this consultancy with you. Would you be interested? And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but sure. And at the same time, I signed a contract to do a series of small talks in Russia that was like enough to like kind of sustain my livelihood at the time. I had enough in the bank to live for like a year, so it wasn't a big deal. But I was doing that and then I formed a company and just started publicizing that I was willing to talk to people for money. <laughs> what was that even called? Like a professional speaker? Is that what that That was part of it. So the first thing I was doing was I was teaching leadership. So I was coming into organizations and teaching leadership and I quickly realized I was missing game development. Mm. So I added in contracting to my job and I started working with a company as an outsource producer slash designer. And that was satisfying, but it wasn't what I wanted to be doing 100% of my time. I wanted to be involved in making games still. So I still I still do that to this day. Half of my week is spent being an individual contributor making games. And then the other half of my week is consulting and teaching and things like that. So the best advice anybody ever gave me about consulting and contract work was my friend Jessica Damerst, who I lived with in Australia. And she said, if someone asks me to make a cupcake... And I don't know how to make cupcakes. I'm going to make the best damn cupcake they've ever had. Because after that, they're going to ask me to program their website or program this or do that. And so I've always had that mindset of I'm willing to do something that's maybe completely different than my background to get my foot into a potential client that could be substantial. About 90% of my work has been game companies. But 10% of my work has been tech companies, investment companies, and different things that I didn't understand. But they asked me to do something. I learned enough to be competent to have that conversation with them. And then I started exploring that. And so one of my favorites was an aerospace company. I love airplanes. I'm, I'm an airplane nerd. <laughs> that was your first dream job, right? That was you my first to be dream a job. air fighter pilot. Yeah, right. Yeah. Until I found out you have to kill people and I didn't want to do that. So <laughs> so this company asked me to build them a website and I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And then I became an IT technical consultant, not like technical for their website, but just like they wanted to build some technology and potentially some applications and stuff. And so I worked for them for, for a year and they knew that the whole time I had one goal and the goal was that they owned a bunch of private jets. The goal was for them to let me fly one of the private jets. That was my whole goal. And it almost happened. Uh, my wife and I were in France for vacation. And we were supposed to go to Switzerland for me to fly the jet. And they moved the jet a day early, so I didn't get to fly it. Oh, it was, it was like a, a timing thing? Yeah, yeah. So it was a Gulfstream G6. So it's like oh, a you know super baller. Like uh, a G6, bro? They yeah. I was going to sing shit. it the whole time while I was flying it. So... <laughs> With your pilot hat. And your yeah, jersey. yeah, exactly. So I started consulting and this year, this this week marks four years since my first paid consulting gig. It's been a wild ride. I've worked on about a dozen different games. I've worked for a bunch of different studios and it's been a blast. It is a very challenging. I always joke with my wife that I build this many hours and that's because the number of hours I bill, 
I have to add like four to five hours on top of that for business because mm -hmm. I run a business. So I have to do, you know, invoicing and marketing and communication with potential clients and all this stuff. And so talking to my accountants and lawyers and like all this stuff gets added on top of it. So I think when most people start consulting, they think, oh, I'm just going to get paid to give advice. But you are running a business and the marketing side of it is it's kind of the biggest thing. I've been very lucky and blessed that word of mouth has sustained about 90% of my work. And then, you know, my books, speaking at GDC, my relationship with GDC and Gama Sutra has been really helpful. You know, I've been on their podcast and uh, I just did a talk for them on Wednesday. That stuff has helped a lot. It's just constantly kind of putting myself out there. Two things that if anybody wants to be a consultant that I would tell them. And the first is you identify how much you think you're worth, mm -hmm. right? How much you think you should charge an hour. And then you kind of lower that and know that in a few years, you'll get to where that number is. I'm finally at the initial number that I said I was going to charge per hour <laughs> nice. four years ago. And then, you know, the other thing is that you just are constantly saying yes to things until your schedule gets full. And then you can start being a little bit more selective. Now, the hard thing is some of the contracts that I work on are, are like time limited, right? So I know for the next two months, I'm going to be working on this. So I have to be looking to fill those hours in two months. So I'm already having conversations two months out of potentially working on different projects. So it's a lot of balancing things. Right now, I have 14 clients and 16 projects that I work on. And so it's a lot to kind of keep in your in your brain. So it's not, yeah. it's all on this whiteboard over here. I have a whiteboard, my entire wall in front of me is like a sticky note whiteboard thing. I'm glad I was about to ask you, how the hell do you keep track of it? But a big ass whiteboard. Yeah, so it's all written there. And the other thing that you learn really quickly is how to compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. So at one point yesterday, I was putting together a budget for a multi-million dollar project. And then I was like deep in it, man. Like, you know, when you're in design flow or math flow or whatever, I'm like, yeah. in it. and I had to snap out of it and go into a meeting to talk about releasing a game that I've been consulting on for the last two years. And so oh. you're, you have to be able to just like switch your brain really, really quickly. That would kill me, man. I'm not built for that. No, you do. You develop it. <laughs> sure. I mean, you have that muscle that you were working on back at Mega Touch and mm -hmm. going through managing hundred plus size dev teams, right? And even kind of splitting that scale. But I don't want to downplay it. That's killer. I'm, I'm the type of creative guy that's like, I thrive in flow. And anytime I get pulled out of it, right, it takes me however long to get back into it, right? And distractions and being home and all that stuff. That's extremely impressive, right? The sheer number of problem spaces that you're jumping back and forth between, like it's a game of hopscotch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is crazy, man. Jeez. Yeah. Thank you for grounding me and the vision and the dream of like being, you know, AAA game dev consultant where I just kind of <laughs> parachute in, work on the sweet thing, give all my ideas, and then parachute out. <laughs> One day. <laughs> I definitely had this rose tinted shades kind of view on it that's a lot of work man it's a lot of yeah. work it's a lot of work and it's a lot of fun i'm developing games in countries that i have never seen games come out of 
I'm working with people that I'm excited for their voices to be on the scene. I'm working with cultures that I don't understand. I'm working with just a variety of different projects from AAA level first-person shooters to 2D small teams of five people. So it's a lot of fun. And my ultimate goal is to get 100 shipped games by the end of 2025. So I have uh, 25 to go. We'll see if I can get there in four years. Because your first five years, you dropped like 50. Yeah. (laughs) I'm at 65 shipped and I'm at 70 shipped technology products. So five non-games. And I have like 15, 16 potentials in the works right now so you are on the way right i, I see you on that climb into renaissance da Vinci-ness, right you got a few books published you got a ton of talks out there on the web you're trying to hit triple digit games you're gonna make me have to go look to see if anyone can claim triple digit games brenda romero has 106 i think She's crushing it. Brenda Romero is by far like one of the greatest game designers to ever live. Most prolific game designer by yes, far, right? I give her Most that. Most prolific by far. I give her that. Last thing I heard her say on On A Buddy's podcast was when she retires, her day-to-day is not going to change. <laughs> it's just going to be like, okay, I finally get to do the games I want to do for myself kind of thing. Yeah. The first time I met her, she described herself as a lifer. I was pretty cynical when people described themselves as a lifer in the industry. But what they're saying is that they will always make games, right? And I've talked to my wife about this. Like, there's a lot of things I want to do that aren't making games, but Mm -hmm. I will never stop making games. There will always be 10 to 20% of my time and my brain that are spent developing games because I ultimately think it's the best way to impact the world. I love it. You and I have the same kind of time average about three years at a place before some magical thing happens where it's like, buddy is at a different place, really cool project, uh, city or place is calling you back, really compelling offer, all the different types of things that happen. I think in your case, you've really not had a chance to kind of steer yourself. It's kind of the waves came to you crashed up on your face and then you kind of sailed with the wind right and, and and it led to great things finally as a consultant you're finding something that breaks that average and you according to what you said in the beginning it wasn't that way right you still had to be like yes to things you didn't even want to do yeah but now finally it pays off finally yeah. you have the point where you can say no to things you don't want to do and you can even create opportunities to do more of the thing you want to do right that's so exciting to see and hear that it exists that it can happen that you can design your life and your career simultaneously and it all came from being in new zealand yeah man i I love that place i I can't get back there enough i've been lucky to spend quite a bit of time in in new zealand and that place just it's magical i think a, a big thing you said was speaking about relationships and how you found that your calling is to serve others and it got caught up or misdirected potentially at like serving the project yeah right it's like oh man i'm doing this thing that makes me feel really good right i want to give it my 100 percent attention and self to your detriment right yeah It's, it's still the same thing but now in serving others including yourself You've been able to kind of repoint that lens and you've kind of found a healthy place and space to enhance your longevity, right? Something we've talked about on the show a lot with some of the guests is how the hell do game developers last more than five years, more than 10 years because of things like sacrificing mental health, physical health, getting burnt out, not taking breaks, letting the needs of the project outweigh your own needs as a, as a person, as a human, right? And costing relationships. 
I love it that you have a goal of getting a hundred shipped games and now you can sustain that vision because you have the control to say no and to make decisions that keep you healthy. Today, all the things you do, all the relationships you've built up and all the people you're serving, right? As a consultant, as a friend, as a mentor, as an advisor, if your relationships are a bank account, how do you deposit or withdraw from there? Does, mm. does that question make sense? Yeah, I think so. I had a boss, his name is Deke Waters, and he's a riot now, but he was a producer in software. And he said to me once, I have a mantra and my mantra for production is people over product, product over process. And that has been kind of a guiding light for me for a long time. I had a water bottle while I was at Epic that said people first. And so ultimately, all of my decisions were supposed to come for the people before the project. And you're right that it started to become a little bit too projecty. And so with my consultancy, it's all about pouring into people and making their teams better in whatever way that is. So inherently, I'm just focused on the people. Even if I'm brought in to review a project, I'm focused on the people. I'm working with a client right now, and, and I was meeting with their producer, and she said to me the other day, I can't explain how happy the team is now because of the changes that we've worked on together and implemented within the team. They're happier, they're healthier, the project is going to be better. And to me, that's what it's all about. Like the game will ship and it'll have my name on it and that'll be cool. But ultimately, I made their lives and their development experience better. And if you can make the life of a developer 10% better, then that's exponentially going to make the game better. I don't know if you've ever worked on a game when you're not happy, <laughs> Oh God! but it's not your best work. But if you're happy, then you can get into that flow state that we talked about. And it is going to be your best work, right? And ultimately, our job in leadership is to get the best work out of every individual as often as possible and to identify when they're not doing their best work and help them in whatever way to get back to that place. Hell yeah, man. Doing your work at scale, again, promoting longevity and, and keeping people able to do their best work for however many years, right? And if it's not on the, that particular team, you know, on the next team that they're on. Right. Something that you experienced at id that I, I hate to see, right? And it's a project wraps up and that's a great opportunity for those developers to get some time off, unplug, recharge, enter life crunch, right? And yeah. then come back ready to do the next thing. And I, it kills me, man, when teams do this shit where they're just kind of like, all right, as soon as you're done or even before you're done, you're rolling right on to the next thing, right? That's on fire because this project is behind schedule, right? And it doesn't even give you a chance to recharge, rejuvenate, right? Like find center. You need that. Yeah. If anybody out there is listening that controls these type of decisions on game teams is, is give your team a time to detach, disconnect, unplug, recharge between projects. Please, man, yes, please. Definitely. I usually like to ask, hey, what type of game would you like to work on that you haven't already worked on? I still haven't worked on a game like Deus Ex. I didn't work on Prey. I didn't work on Dishonored. I was in the room when Dishonored was being worked on, but I didn't work on it. Now, from my conversations <laughs> with Harvey and Raph and Seth and all the guys that have worked over there, Rusty, it's like... Maybe I don't want to work on one of those games. <laughs> but I think there's a part of me that still really does, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that might be, you know, I've worked on just about everything else. You know, I've worked on, on sports games. I've worked on AAA first-person shooters. I've worked on weird combat things. I've worked on 2D games. I've worked on card games. I've worked on 
board games. <laughs> like I've worked on just about every genre, but I but I haven't done that weird simulation RPG. Yeah, it's like systemic, systemic craziness. RPG. Yeah, bro. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I felt that way about games like Halo. Right, I was a huge fan of Halo, and I even interviewed with Bungie, and it, it, there was de- a definite fear that kind of held me back to be like, man, I love this game so much, I don't want to be involved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's how I. Fe- that's how I feel about Assassin's Creed. Like, I love the Assassin's Creed franchise. But I don't want to work on them, right? <laughs> because then I'll never be able to enjoy them again. Same with Far Cry. But both, you know, I, I have a love for those two games and, and for what Ubisoft has done with them. And Indeed, I I don't want to get in the weeds on those. Like Far Cry 2 is like, to me, one of the most important games ever made. Clint Hawking did a miracle with that game. And Clint. It's, it's such a such a good game. Uh, but I don't yeah, I don't really want to work on the Far Cry series. Yeah. yeah. I, I, won't, I wouldn't get to enjoy them as a player. So yeah. Exactly. There's a healthy respect for what would go into working on that let alone enhancing what it is yeah exactly exactly is there anyone that you cite i mean you you called out a few of them already but want to make sure we didn't leave anyone out in terms of mentors Mm. that have helped you navigate these waters and the off chance that they may be listening (laughs) that you can give them their little spotlight for where they've helped you get to i think there's two types of mentors right there's Uh, what I call a spoken mentor, which is you and I have agreed to a mentor-mentee relationship. We will check in with each other on a regular basis. And then there's what I call the unspoken mentors, which are people that you look up to or seek advice from on an irregular basis. And my list for both of those is very vast. And those people have been thanked profusely in many different forums and and they know who they are. (laughs) But what I was going to say is that you probably don't know that you're one of those unspoken mentors to me. Like, you know, I talked to you when when I was a student, and I, you know, I followed your career, and I've talked to you throughout the years. And what I love is that at some point, that relationship changes in someone's mind to this is just a friend of mine, right? Yeah. And so you may look up to that person and have an unspoken mentorship with them, and you've asked them advice, and they've given you advice, or you're following their career and being inspired by it. But at some point, you just become friends with those people. And what's awesome for me is that's happened in both my spoken and unspoken mentors. I think you very rarely have mentors for life, but you have mentors for seasons of life. And so I've been very lucky to have many, many great mentors for a season that eventually become my friends. I cannot stress enough the value of of having someone that you can go to and ask questions about your career or life that's super touching like i try to hold it in but i really really appreciate it like the concept of mentors for seasons definitely takes the weight off of it yeah exactly as anybody looking at what you've accomplished what you've done since graduating being in the hall of fame working on almost a hundred ship titles right on on route and (laughs) Some of the awesome things you're working on that I definitely want to bring you back to talk about in the future. I don't see how I hold a candle in there at all. But to think back to be like, all right, maybe I had a season. Maybe I had a (laughs) week or a month or something like that. That's awesome, bro. And I thank you. I thank you for making me feel good about that. Oh No, man, you'll you'll never know the impact that you have on other people. And I'm glad that I can tell you a little bit of the impact that, you know, you've had on me. And I'll tell you, it's more than a week. 
of <laughs> of an impact. Shank, this has been an awesome time. This was fun for me. We it's don't get to do this enough. I usually get to have the benefit of running into you at GDC at least once a year yep. and touching base. I do want to say this, man. For a guy who doesn't drink, you know how to have a damn good time. <laughs> you know how to have a blast. Like the, the times where we got to bump shoulders at an outing, I'm definitely drinking or enjoying and other delights. And I see you right there, man, laughing, dancing, whatever. <laughs> and I, I couldn't tell any difference, right? <laughs> so that I think that's a wonderful thing. And I, and I hope to be able to chop it up with you at some point, man, when all this madness subsides. But I got to hit you off with the, the little ritual that I'm trying to build on the show is if you had a good time falling out of play area, if there is anyone that you would like to nominate to fall out of play area behind you can i do three three seems like a significant number <laughs> to you, man. Let's, <laughs> all right all right it. ari patrick who is a senior producer at epic games he went to full sale and he worked at id software but he has an extremely interesting career path where he left games and did film for a while. And uh, he worked on, I think, the Box Trolls. And he and I have known each other since he was a student. He'd be awesome. Kim Swift, who was one of my mentors early in my career and now is a good friend of mine. She was uh, the lead designer on Portal. She was at EA for a while and she's at Google now. I think she provides a lot of very interesting perspectives from her experience. And then the last one, Tanya Watson, who was the executive producer on Fortnite. Uh, and then she ran Squatch Games for a while and recently has taken a break. And her experience in the industry for the last 15 years has just been super interesting. So. Okay. Hell yeah. Tanya Watson, Kim Swift, Ari Patrick. I got them all. My work's cut out for me. You're going to have to help me hunt them down. Yeah, for sure. I'd love for you to let people know how they can reach out to you, connect with you, see what you're working on, hit you up. It seems like your calendar's pretty freaking packed. <laughs> the best way is just to, to Google Shonk Ventures and you'll find, Shonk you'll find me. Or, or just look for G-Shonk or Grant Shonk, whether I'm the only one out there, so... And and I think you, you cover at least the first two pages of a Google search. <laughs> yeah, easily. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I love talking to people and helping people and answering questions. So the easiest way to get in touch with me is uh, to email me, which is gshonk at gmail.com, gshonk at gmail.com. And that's, uh, that's the best way to get in touch with me. And yeah, I'm happy to help answer any questions, uh, you know, mentoring, anything like that. Uh, I may not have a ton of time, but I definitely can point you in the right direction or uh, give you a little guidance. And consultation. It looks like that. That's, that's true. Uh, if you got yeah. money, I definitely have time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, I can't thank you enough. Grant, this was fantastic. This was awesome. This exceeded any little expectations I had for it. And I can't wait to get this one out there, bro. All right, man. I look forward to it. And uh, have a good rest of your weekend. You too, brother. All right. Later. All right, all right, all right, all right. I got a lot to unpack after this one. My head is still swirling. I love the way he makes his recruiter work for him and challenges his offers. I'm 1 billion percent behind that. Unless, of course, you have no experience. But if you do, do your homework the same way you would for real estate or stocks, get comparisons, and measure yourself and your experience and your value and have a solid number you're targeting. Be realistic. I'm super hyped to connect with Ari, Kim, and Tanya. I've never worked with them. I've never met them. I've never spoke with them. I'm really super grateful how guests have embraced completely throwing their peers onto this podcast. And to be fair, you guys have all embraced the platforms. Thank you so much. Gracias. Merci beaucoup. 
Secondly, I've made a note for myself to invite Carrie as a guest. We haven't sat down with any recruiters on this show, and she's got good-ass stories on at least a good half of the people that have already been on this show. How do you all feel about game dev consulting? Grant helped bring it down to earth for me a little bit. I still do love the idea of working across multiple projects, not being bound to one studio. I compare it to the Hollywood model, where actors get to work with all types of different actors and directors. I'll admit, EA keeps me really comfortable, and I've found my happy place working on the engine side, where I get to see and learn my tech design skills across many different projects using Frostbite. Still, freelancing is one of those things I tell myself I have to check out one day. Grant's a prime example of the power of radical vulnerability. Check out the show notes where you'll see links to his various talks at GDC, how to run a Pichacucha, and his handy books. I've only read his Remote Teamwork Tools book, but that's an easy wreck for any one of us operating remotely, which is pretty much all of us these days. How about burnout, yo? Straight up having to quit working at Epic. I know I've been there in my life where I needed to step away for a good year after Rockstar before I jumped back in at Warner Brothers, where they gave me that perfect place with an awesome project that I was hyped about in a location I wanted to live in, and most importantly, that work-life balance I was looking for. I find that it's a very U.S.-specific life approach where we all define ourselves by our work, and it totally shouldn't be the case. How about his perspective on unspoken versus spoken mentors? How did that land with you? I did feel a little bashful when he credited me as having been a mentor for him, even if for a season, because he's definitely trailblazed some paths I hope to walk someday, which include getting into my alma mater's Hall of Fame and maybe checking out freelance life one day. In episode 12, debuting Monday, July 5th, I sit down with the good homie Chris Torres, an accomplished animator in this industry currently working as an animation director at Blue Point Games where he's contributed to remakes of such gems, including Demon Souls and the beloved Shadow of the Colossus. He's a great friend where we worked together at Midway Austin on Black Side Area 51. He's since gone and taken his animation skills to retro to be one of the first guests on this show that has Nintendo chops under his belt, where he animated multiple Donkey Kong countries across the Wii, Wii U, 3DS, and Switch. We go in on how he approaches managing, what he looks for in an animation demo reel, and more. You won't want to miss it, so make sure to follow. If you found it enlightening and enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate your support in following the podcast on Spotify or leaving a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts or sending a link to a fellow developer and putting them onto the show. Every bit helps get this out there and raise awareness. Out of Play Area releases new episodes every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms. Please make sure to follow to see what developer falls out of play area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Till next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Mega Ram, take them home. By the tenants, prepare for takeoff. Captain crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out of play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, know we got the vibes. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out of play area podcast. Out of play area podcast. It's just a little something for the game devs. Stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous. Had to switch the styles for a challenge. Best thing out of Harlem since Young Miles Morales. A new podcast.
Area Podcast, a show by game devs for game devs, with no ads, no BS, just the real. Welcome to the Out of Play Area. Let's go.